The president made me do it. I didn't do it on my own when I went to the Capitol. I was just listening to the president. The president made me do it. The devil made me do it. Twinkies made me do it. Today on The Dirt Show, we consider the made me do it defense. Today on The Dirt Show, we're going to have an advanced seminar in criminal law. The question is, can somebody who went to the Capitol, somebody who may have invaded the Capitol, somebody who may have destroyed property, somebody who may have even hurt or killed an innocent individual, can they claim the defense of, quote, the president made me do it? The New York Times today reports that a number of defendants who were arrested for events at the Capitol are now saying the president made me do it. I did because I was listening to the commander in chief. The commander in chief ordered me to do it. This was a presidential command, a presidential order. And therefore, I'm not guilty. The president's guilty. So that's the question for today's seminar. It's a double question. Number one, do defendants who may have committed crimes ranging from trespassing to destruction of property to homicide have any kind of a defense? The president made me do it, high authority, executive orders, all of that. That's number one question. Do they have a defense? And number two question related to the number one question is, does the president bear legal responsibility if some people in the crowd believed they were under orders from the president to do what they did. Okay, let's start with a few basic principles. This is going to surprise you. The president is not the commander-in-chief. What? The Constitution says the president's the commander-in-chief. No, it doesn't. The Constitution says the president is the commander-in-chief of the United States Armed Forces. He is the general, the top general. He can tell a soldier what to do. He can tell a general what to do. He can tell a lieutenant what to do. He cannot tell you or me what to do. He cannot tell the most lowly American, even a prisoner, anybody who's not in the armed forces, the president's just an ordinary citizen. There's no such thing as an order from the president. The president has no power to order people around. If the president were addressing American troops and said to American troops, I order you to go to the Capitol, that would be an order of the commander in, in chief. And then the issue comes up, does the member of the armed forces have to obey an order? It depends on whether it's a lawful order or an unlawful order. We have the Nuremberg principles. We know that uh, soldiers are not required, indeed are not allowed to obey unlawful orders. Go to the Capitol would not be an unlawful order. Break into the Capitol would be an unlawful order. But we're not talking about soldiers in the armed forces who were there in their capacity as soldiers. The president did not invoke his authority as commander-in-chief of the armed forces. So we're talking about the president having a bully pulpit, people respecting the office, some respecting the person, some not respecting the person, but all respecting the office, and the president says, march on the Capitol. I want you to show how strong we are. March, do this, do that. Don't show them we're not going to take it. Show them we have strength, etc." Is that an order 
that a civilian is required to follow? Of course, the answer to that is no. Moreover, the president also said, do it peacefully, peacefully, and patriotically, patriotically. Now, patriotically can have various meanings, but peacefully can't have various meanings. It doesn't mean break into the Capitol. It doesn't mean break windows. It doesn't mean assault police officers. It doesn't mean doing what some of the people did when they got to the Capitol. So I, I don't think that people are going to get very far with that defense. Uh, before we get to the issue of the president's responsibility, let me give you some other facts which make this issue uh, much more understandable. Let's remember there are approximately five categories of people uh, involved in this incident. There were the people who heard the president speak. There are estimates, I don't know, 20,000, 30,000, 40,000, 10,000, doesn't matter. Uh, a, a, a number of thousands of people listened to the president speak. That's group one. Certainly they didn't do anything wrong listening to the president's speech, um, listening to other speakers, um, some of whom I fundamentally disagree with. But listening to speeches, that obviously can't be a crime. And the speaker can't commit a crime just by speaking to thousands of people. So we have the first core of people. Thousands of people listen to the president's speech. From that group... A number of those people, we don't know exactly how many, then went from the speech to the Capitol. By the way, others went to the Capitol directly. They didn't even hear the speech. Presumably, they had planned this independent of the speech. Well, that doesn't matter. Let's just focus on the people who listened to the speech. So let's make up a number. Let's assume one-tenth, one-fifth, doesn't matter. A percentage of the people who listened to the speech went to the Capitol which means the vast majority of people who listened to the speech didn't go to the Capitol. So the president didn't make them do it. They didn't do it. They didn't have to do it. You know, it's not like shouting fire in the theater. When anybody, president or everybody else, shouts fire in a crowded theater, everybody leaves the theater. You're not going to have a debate at that point. Well, let's think about the possibilities. Maybe there is a fire. Maybe there isn't a fire. But maybe if there is a fire, we're better off staying. Maybe it's a fake news. Maybe we don't believe it. No. When somebody yells fire, you get up and you leave the theater. It's the same as somebody setting off an alarm. The shout of fire isn't speech. It's a clang sound. Shouting fire is exactly the same as setting off an alarm. Setting off an alarm is not protected speech. Shouting fire is not protected speech. Why? Because it's not an appeal to the brain. It's an appeal to the adrenaline and to the legs. Get the hell out of there now. Everybody does it. If the president had done the equivalent of shouting fire, then everybody who listened to his speech would have gone to the Capitol. But the majority of people who listened to the speech didn't go to the Capitol. They thought about it. Some agreed with the president. Some disagreed. Others were lazy. Others had other appointments or other priorities. Others were scared. Doesn't matter. It was not a one-to-one -one relationship between hearing the president's speech and going to the Capitol. Okay, that's group two, the ones who went to the Capitol. They, too, are constitutionally protected. You are entitled to go to the Capitol under two provisions of the First Amendment, one freedom of speech and the other freedom of assembly, peacefully to assemble and to uh, a petition for the government for a redress of grievances. These people thought they had a grievance. Do I agree? That doesn't matter. 
they believe they had a grievance. They believe the grievance was the election, and the election they believed was stolen. Doesn't matter whether they were right or wrong. It doesn't even matter whether they believed it or not for purposes of the First Amendment and petitioning for a redress of grievances. They were entitled to go to the Capitol. So that's Group 2, perfectly constitutionally protected. Then we have Group 3. Group 3 are the people who then broke the law and trespassed into the Capitol. They went through security. They went through barriers. They were told by the police to stop. They didn't. They knew they were not entitled to walk onto the Senate floor. They knew they were not entitled to walk through the area where the statues are, the rotunda. They knew they were committing a crime, not an extraordinarily serious crime, trespassing on government property, but they have no defense. The president didn't make them do that. The president didn't even tell them to do that. The president said peacefully and patriotically. So that's the third group of, of people. Um, they certainly don't have a defense. Uh, they went beyond what the president asked them to do. And the president's not responsible for people who went beyond what he asked them to do. He asked them to protest peacefully and patriotically. They broke the law. They went into the building. Then we get to the fourth category of people. Here we're getting to very serious matters. The group of people who, in clear violation of what the president asked them to do, destroyed property, broke windows, um, stole property, stole iPhones and iPads and computers, um, um, broke into the Senate, um, did other property damage. They certainly have no defense. Nobody told them to do that. They did that on their own. They are completely responsible. I mean, that would be no better than the Twinkie defense. You know, Twinkies made me do it. Uh, um, you know, you've heard so many abuse excuses over the years. X made me do it. No, no, no. In America, you're responsible for your own actions. So that's category number four. People who broke, destroyed property, stole property. Serious, serious crimes. They should be punished and they will be punished. And they'll probably get... Um, um, a year, maybe more in prison. They didn't hurt anybody. But then we get to the fifth and the most serious category, people who hurt or killed others. Um, and, and we know that that happened. Um, we know from videos that we've seen <clears throat> that at least one person threw a fire extinguisher at a policeman resulting in his death. Um, that's homicide. Uh, that's a very, very serious crime. Surely the president didn't tell him to do that. Surely he was not following any presidential directive or presidential order. Surely there's no defense to that kind of uh, horrible, um, homicidal uh, a conduct. And so it's important to distinguish those five categories. And those five categories really are what proves that the president is not legally responsible for what happened at the Capitol. Legally responsible in a criminal sense, we know that the U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia <clears throat> has said he is investigating everybody and no exceptions. The implication was he's investigating the president. Uh, if he starts investigating the president and puts some good lawyers on the investigation, they're going to tell him, forget about it. There's no way you can prosecute the president for causing the damage in the Capitol. 
Uh, number one, his speech was constitutionally protected under Brandenburg. You've heard the reasons why. It was pablum compared to the Brandenburg speech itself. It was pablum compared to the Chicago 7 speech and, and comparable to many, many other speeches that have been delivered in Washington, D.C., where the speaker, whether a labor union leader or a radical leftist, a radical rightist, a, you know, a civil rights activist, a suffragette, uh, somebody advocating uh, Second Amendment rights, somebody opposing abortion, somebody <clears throat> supporting a woman's right to choose, women's march, million man watch. We know that equally fiery rhetorical speeches have been made. Go to the Capitol, show them how strong we are, confront them, get in their face, tell them that they can't do what they're planning to do. Don't let them get away with it. Be strong. We'll lose if we're not strong. Those speeches are everyday occurrences in the District of Columbia, and they are protected fully by the Constitution of the United States. So that's one reason. But the second reason is you can't show a causal relationship between the president's speech and what went on in the Capitol when the vast majority of people who listened to the president's speech didn't go to the Capitol. The vast majority of people who went to the Capitol didn't break into the Capitol. The vast majority of people who broke into the Capitol didn't do serious material harm, property damage. And the vast, 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 vast majority of people who listened to the speech didn't engage in homicidal or other physical violence against individuals. And by, by simple rules of causation, you know, it goes back to, you know, does, uh, does um, uh, marijuana smoking lead to, um, to um, heroin? Does pornography lead to rape? It may be the case that the vast majority of people who use heroin once used marijuana, who used heroin once used marijuana, it may be true that the majority of people who rape have seen pornography, but you have to turn the issue on the other side. What percentage of people who watch pornography rape? Probably point zero 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 zero. I take the whole show up to uh, uh, get to the point of where the zeros become a one. Same thing is true with marijuana. What percentage of people who smoke marijuana? go on to smoke heroin, point zero 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 zero. probably the same number of people who drink Coca-Cola who go on to heroin. So we have to understand basic principles of causation, both as a matter of empirical scientific um, knowledge, but also as a matter of law. Uh, it may be that but for the speech of the president, uh, some of the people who went wouldn't have gone, but that's not the legal definition of causation for purposes of the criminal law or for purposes of impeachment. Uh, there are many, many but-for causes, um, and but-for cause is not the basic way in which we analyze causation in, in, in law in, in general. We look at the, 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 the whole picture, the number of people involved who did bad things, the number of people involved who heard the speaker, etc. When you analyze it that way, there's no case that can be made for holding the president legally responsible. You know, morally, everybody has their own judgments to make morally. Uh, we can disagree about the moral content of the speech. I wouldn't have given that speech. I wouldn't have delivered that speech. I wouldn't have used those words. I wouldn't have joined in to the people who were speaking before. I would have been more careful about 
what I said uh, at a time of great volatility. I would have watched my words more carefully. Those are all moral issues, moral concerns. But the basic essence of democracy when it comes to criminal justice is to distinguish between sin and crime. I have a copy in my library of the oldest uh, Massachusetts uh, criminal law book um, at the time that the Puritans were controlling the Massachusetts Bay Colony. And there they didn't distinguish between sin and crime. It was a crime. You're going to find this surprising. It was a crime in Massachusetts in the 17th century to celebrate Christmas. Why? Because the Puritans regarded Christmas as a pagan holiday, and they actually punished the celebration of Christmas. It was a crime to welcome into your home a Jesuit, a Catholic uh, of the Jesuit uh, faith. Uh, those were crimes under Massachusetts law in the, in the 17th uh, century. Um, obviously, the First Amendment to our Constitution, which prohibits religious discrimination and prohibits the establishment of uh, religion, um, would preclude any of that being done. We don't any longer conflate sin with crime. Sins are judged by a heavenly court. Crimes are judged by a secular court. And judged by any secular court, what President Trump did was not a crime, was not an impeachable offense, and was not the legal cause of what went on illegally in the Capitol. And so that's my a seminar uh, today in criminal law. I would basically have given the same seminar were I still teaching uh, a criminal law. Of course, if I were giving the seminar, I'd be calling on students and giving a variety of hypotheticals and changing the facts. And of course, there'd be no right answer. Any answer the students gave, I'd give a contrary answer. We'd have a good back and forth. We can't do that in the format of the Der Show, but we can do it less directly. So you've heard my seminar on criminal law, my two conclusions. Number one, nobody who did something illegal can defend on the ground of the president made me do it. Um, number two, the president cannot be held criminally responsible or impeachably responsible for the speech he gave in, in, the, in, the, in Washington, D.C., notwithstanding what went on in the Capitol after he gave it. So I want to hear your views on that. You're my students in my criminal law seminar. You get to do it. You don't even have to raise your hand. Just call in to the numbers on the Dirt Show. Express your opinion. Argue with me. Disagree with me. Um, and we'll continue the discussion in the Q&A period. Uh, today, uh, we have questions and comments on what I said on my last couple of shows. So let's now turn to your comments. Let's now turn to the wits part of the Dirt Show. And let's hear what you have to say on the Dirt Show. Let's turn now to our first caller. Oh, hello, Professor Dershowitz. My name is Stephen. I'm from Portland, Oregon. Um, I have a question for you, and I would like to hear your thoughts on the legality of the Senate holding a trial against an individual who is no longer the president but a private citizen. And bearing that in mind, I wonder if uh, you could say something about this hypothetical situation in which 
the House of Representatives, who has impeached an individual who's president and then is no longer the president, would hold and not deliver the articles of impeachment to the Senate. And if that individual who was a former president would run for president again four years later and get elected and become president, could the House of Representatives then take those articles of impeachment and deliver them to the Senate because the individual is now the president again and impeach him and try him and convict him four years later. I would like to hear what you think about that. Thank you, Mr. Dershowitz. Wow, you would have been a great law student. That was a great question. I don't know the answer to that. Um, obviously, my view is that a president can't be impeached once he leaves office, but your hypothetical has him getting reelected the way Grover Cleveland got reelected after four years and the way Teddy Roosevelt tried to get reelected after he was out of office for four years. So the president then gets elected and then is impeached and tried, not for what he did in his second presidential term, for what, but what he was impeached for during his first presidential term. <laughs> Nobody knows the answer to that. It might also depend on the Senate and House rules. They have internal rules, and there may be rules I'm not familiar with them, which impose kind of limitations on how long an impeachment remains valid without a trial. So we don't know. Maybe we'll learn the answer if President Trump runs again and wins in 2024. Your hypothetical may become reality. Thanks for the great question. I just watched your show on the speech you're going to give at Harvard, and uh, you talked about Reverend Warnock and not being able to support him. And, but However, the Democratic Party condones his anti-Semitic views. That is the Democratic Party because they condone uh, Rashida Tlaib and, and Ethan Omar and their anti-Semitic views. This is why I cannot support the Democratic Party. They're anti-Semites. I'm a Christian, but I cannot support a party who openly, openly supports anti-Semitism. Thank you, Professor, and uh, you have a great day. Look, I agree with you. I could never support a party which openly supported anti-Semitism, but the Democratic Party is very diverse. There are people in the Democratic Party who have expressed anti-Semitic views. Reverend Warnock is one of them, uh, saying that he, we, saw uh, Israelis shooting unarmed Palestinian brothers and sisters like birds of prey is a blood libel, and there's no way around that. And you can't just say that's anti-Israel. It's so over the top, it really begins to fit the category of opposing it because it's the nation state of the Jewish people, which is anti-Semitism. Um, there's no question Elon Omer has expressed anti-Semitic views, but they're not the center of the Democratic Party. Uh, the last thing you could ever say about, um, uh, about Joe Biden is that he's anti-Semitic. He's not. Um, you know, he's very close to the Jewish community and he's been very supportive of the Jewish community. I've known him for years and years and years. The same thing is true. The leaders of the Democratic Party, Nancy Pelosi and, and uh, Schumer and others, uh, obviously are not 
uh, anti-Semitic. So you can't label the entire Democratic Party anti-Semitic. Has the Democratic Party done enough to marginalize the anti-Semites within the party? No, no, uh, they haven't. So um, that uh, is why I remain a Democrat. I see part of my role as keeping the Democratic Party centrist and marginalizing those who express anti-Semitic views. I wish they did a better job. Hi, this is Adam from Miami. My question is, um, due to the occurrences over the weekend of Twitter banning Donald Trump and um, Amazon Web Services taking down Parla, what stops uh, any private company from basically disappearing anybody? Let's say you, Alan Dershowitz, you know, you're, you've got excuses against you and Twitter decides to ban you and YouTube starts to take you down and Citibank decides it doesn't want to do any business with you. Basically, all private institutions in the United States could basically decide that they don't want to do business with you. And it seems like there's a coordinated effort trying to go and uh, make it that every single private company feels that they can't do business with you. So Facebook coordinates with Google and with Citibank and with PayPal and basically you could be disappeared. Um, how does one individual go and fight back against that? Thanks. And that's a great question, and it's part of cancel culture. Uh, people are canceled. We're seeing President Trump being canceled now by banks, by golf courses, by a range of other issues. The law doesn't prevent discrimination based on politics. If they discriminated against somebody based on race or religion or gender or sexual orientation, that would be a different matter. But discriminating based on politics is not protected by the Constitution in general. There are certain areas where maybe it would be constitutionally protected. I think that there are two answers. One, the antitrust laws. If you get powerful entities of government combining together for an illegitimate purpose, you can um, often or sometimes uh, find liability under antitrust laws. If they just did it to get a particular individual, that would be hard. Normally, antitrust laws are, are anti-competitive in, in nature, try to prevent anti-competitive actions. I'm not sure that would uh, qualify. The second is take away their exemption under Section 230 of the uh, communications law, and that would expose them to all kinds of lawsuits perhaps contract lawsuits, defamation lawsuits. For example, if if a Internet platform took somebody down and said they're taking him down because he's a racist, that person could sue for defamation, claiming, no, I'm, I'm not a racist, and calling me a racist is defamatory. So there are weapons, but they're not particularly strong. I think we're going to need new legislation in the coming years, and Congress, I know, is uh, having hearings on this, and also there are cases in the court. So stay tuned. This is a work in progress. My name is Christopher. I'm a 100% disabled veteran. I became extremely intrigued in you, and I remember the day exactly. I was standing in line in boot camp, training center Cape May for the United States Coast Guard, 1994. I would hear you speak, and I would get in trouble yelled at while I was trying to listen and watch who this man was that was speaking. And I found out later it was you. I want you to know that how much I, I don't even know the word, to be honest. I look at you as an amazing person. And I really hope one day that I can meet or take a picture with you. I really do. But my question is to you, I know how much you love the Constitution 
and you stand for it. So I can't help but wonder why, if you knew inside that something had to be wrong with the numbers, it, it just doesn't add up. And plus the evidence that was shown just to us, and I can't imagine the evidence that, that's more out there. I can't help but wonder why somebody with your love for the Constitution didn't step up and go to Trump and say, I have your back on this one, even though you dislike him as a political person, and I respect that 100%. Like I said, I'm a stark Trump supporter. If there's any way you could take into consideration that I am a 100% disabled veteran, and if I could somehow get a picture or with you or something, I read all of your books, signature something, I'm even nervous just leaving a message. I feel like a kid leaving a message for a sports figure. That's how I feel about you, sir. Thank you very much. I really appreciate your views, and I want to thank you for your service to the country. I'm sorry about your disability. And if you were to uh, email my office or email the show or call the show and give me contact information, I'd be happy to send you a signed photograph or a book or something. Um, I very much appreciate your support for me. Uh, on the issue of the election, the evidence is has been rejected by courts. Um, I'm agnostic on the issue. I don't know. I haven't seen the evidence. That's why I want to appoint this, what I call VIP, Voter Integrity Panel. So I don't have to decide whether I believe CNN or MSNBC or Fox. Uh, so I would have some experts looking at this uh, data. And um, uh, then I could come to a more credible conclusion about whether there was any irregularities. It's impossible to imagine an election without some irregularities, but I haven't seen the data that would support a conclusion that the irregularities were sufficient to change the outcome of the election. I'm always open to hearing new information and new data, but at the moment I haven't seen that data and information. But thank you so much for your support, and again, thank you for your service to our country. Hey, Professor. My name is Albert. I'm calling from Brooklyn. And... A light topic. Just wanted to know what your favorite law movies are and where my cousin Vinny ranks on that list. Thanks. <clears throat> well, of course, my favorite uh, law movie is Reversal of Fortune, produced uh, by my son Elon, about the Klaus von Bülow case in which I was played by Ron Silver. Of course, that's my favorite law show. My cousin Vinny ranks way, way up there. It's fantastic. Uh, and uh, I, I got to uh, sit next to Marissa Tomei once at a dinner party, and um, we went to, back to talking Brooklynese, and it was great, great fun. My Brooklyn accent, her Brooklyn accent, and uh, uh, her cross-examination um, in that movie is just fantastic. So I love that movie. Um, you know, there are a lot of legal movies that, that I like. There are, there are many more that I that I don't like. Uh, and Justice for All is another one that I, I liked a lot. Um, you know, I've never been a crazy fan for To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, for me, To Kill a Mockingbird took the easy way out, both the novel and the movie, and I've seen the play on Broadway as well. Um, because they had this great heroic figure, Atticus Fitch, defending somebody who was innocent. And okay, he gets some points. He was a black man in a southern segregated town. Yeah, 
But how much more interesting the movie would have been had it turned out he was guilty. And it's much harder and much more heroic and much more courageous to be representing somebody who might be guilty. And that really shows support for the system. Of course, if the person had been guilty, probably the book wouldn't have been a bestseller, the movie wouldn't have been made, and uh, the play wouldn't have been put on Broadway. Uh, We all like happy endings, and we all love to see uh, heroic lawyers defending only the innocent and preventing the innocent from being convicted. Hey, that's not the way the system works. The vast majority of people accused of crime in America are guilty, and thank God for that. Would anybody want to live in a country where the vast majority of people charged with crime were innocent? That's China. You know, that's Iran. That's the former Soviet Union. That may be Belarus today, maybe Venezuela, um, maybe Cuba. Uh, In the days of Castro, it's not the United States of America. So we have to start making heroic films about defense attorneys who defend the guilty along with the innocent. Hey, what great, great questions. I'm looking forward to the next batch of questions on my seminar in criminal law. The devil made me do it. The president made me do it. Twinkies made me do it. So please call in. Let me know what you think of that criminal law seminar. Let me know what you think of my conclusions, namely that the president is innocent and the people who committed serious crimes are guilty. So I want to hear your views. I want to hear your wits on The Dirt Show. An important part of the Dirt Show is your voice, your questions, your comments. Please call 24-7. The number is 216-710-0050. Keep your comments short and to the point. Again, the number for you to call 24-7 is 216-710-0050. Hard questions, criticisms, everything's fine. Just keep your questions short and I'll answer them all on The Dirt Show.